All right. So we have been going through the book of James as I've been preaching. Um, typically, I preach about once per month. Uh, Danny, who is our other elder, uh, usually preaches three times per month, and he's in Revelation. So if you're wondering where we're going and what the pattern is, then you guys Revelation typically three weeks, and uh, I do it. Uh, I preach out of James once per month. Um, this month has been a little different, as you guys have, have probably seen. Uh, Danny had a work assignment that required him to be out in Georgia for the entire month of February. So uh, we've enjoyed getting to hear from Brother Richard, as well as uh, Earl Blackburn uh, last week. He was both uh, did a great job and, and we're really happy to hear from them. So. All right, let's turn to James 2. Uh, please turn there in your Bibles. The scriptures that I have on the slides are, are out of NASB. Uh, that's the version that I will use throughout the sermon. However, um, ESV, KJV, NKJV, um, all of those versions we um, look at as just fine. And please uh, look with me at your version. Um, so, a little bit of background on James chapter two. After chapter one lays out several themes that are going to be seen in the book of James. Now James starts to elaborate on each one of those uh, topics. So he's going to devote some time in today's passage to delving into the rich and poor aspect that we first looked at in chapter one, verses nine through 11. Just to kind of detail out the environment that James is writing to. Remember in one, he gives his audience, right? He says that he's writing to those Jewish believers who are scattered abroad. James himself is uh, the overseer of the church at Jerusalem. So he has a very important role, very central kind of position uh, in the overall um, church at this point. The social situation that James is in is that there are wealthy landowners who have gone in and bought up farms and then make the farmers into their servants on the new farm, okay? So there is this division between rich and poor. James is speaking to a mixed congregation. You know, we think we have some uh, differences between our church body. Can you imagine being in the midst of, of the church at Jerusalem and having uh, former believers that may have been even former Pharisees coming into your church, carrying with them all the customs that they were used to, um, mixing in between rich and poor people and all kinds of different backgrounds in the Jerusalem church. So it was a very difficult um, assignment that God gave to him, uh, but God gave him the means to do it. So that's kind of contextually where James is speaking from when he's speaking in his letters. So let's read again um, 
James 2, 1 through 13, I'll read for us. Uh, My brothers and sisters, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and is dressed in bright clothes and a poor man in dirty clothes also comes in and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the bright clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, did God not choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the good name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as violators. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point, has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a violator of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. One of the things that I love about James is that he gets right to the point, right? He writes a very practical epistle because his overall purpose is that believers would lead a godly life, that they would reflect that position to which they have been called as heirs in Christ. So his instruction is always going to be this is how we uh, this is how we are to live. This is what we are to be uh, because we have been saved. So we are commanded not to show partiality because, among other things, it separates the body. It's it's amazing to me sometimes how God works out the coordination between our Sunday school, our preaching time, our worship. Uh, because if, if those who uh, were in Sunday school this morning, if you think about what we were studying, we were, to study, we were studying about the divided kingdom, the sins of Jeroboam, right? The idolatry of Jeroboam, the split between he and, and Rehoboam. And that was just a stench in the nostrils of God, the division in Israel, the division of God's people. So consistency between what we see in the Old Testament about God's people and what we see in the New Testament about God's people, James is still saying, do not do this because it separates the body. Secondly, you blaspheme the Lord's name because of that. In contrast, 
We do well when we love our neighbor as ourselves. Furthermore, more points in this passage. Breaking part of the law makes you a transgressor of the entire law of God. You know, we, we're in a culture here um, in North Carolina, in the, the Bible Belt, if you will, um, that we like to keep a clean nose, right? We don't uh, drink, we don't chew, and we don't go with girls that do, right? That's our kind of, we want to keep this sort of moral high ground because of the things that we aren't a part of, right? And we will talk all day about some of those things and really harp on them. But James really levels it out here by saying breaking part of the law makes you a transgressor of the entire law of God. Um, our, uh, our nose clean does not, uh, does not impress God. Uh, we are to live in the law of freedom. And lastly, silver bullet verse for us today, mercy triumphs over judgment. So let's dig in a bit. If you recall, when we first started James and throughout the course of teaching through several different passages and sermons, one of the things about James is he's very reliant on two different sources of information. The first is the Old Testament wisdom sections. He looks to Proverbs. He looks to the books of wisdom in the Old Testament and draws all of that. That really reflects his Jewish heritage, right? His uh, heritage in knowledge of the scriptures. And secondly, the teachings of Jesus. So many of so many of the things that James is going to say and point out have direct correlation with some of the sermons that Jesus had and some of the things that Jesus said. Um, and James really parallels those and, and we'll bring some of those out today. So in these first four four, four verses, excuse me. My brothers and sisters, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and is dressed in bright clothes and a poor man in dirty clothes also comes in. So two different groups here. And you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the bright clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil motives? Now, this is very a blatant distinction that could be made because the rich, the rich here are dressed in fine clothes and they come in and they're very noticeable. And you could imagine like the ushers, if you will, <laughs> helping them to a favorite sitting spot where they could be front and center to everything that was done and heard. Whereas these poor men come in, poor women come in, and it's either stand over here or sit down um, right at our feet. 
um, and making this very visible distinction, but broadening that out to us, what distinctions do we make? What sort of litmus tests do we put on other believers, right, that aren't scriptural? We constantly try to divide ourselves and one-up each other, and it's not of God. Um, why is there an exhortation against division in the body, first of all? Why, why is there... Why does James say, don't cause these divisions? And why does it, why does he equate it to blasphemy? That seems like a pretty, pretty steep climb, right? From just making a distinction to, or a separation to blaspheming God, uh, which we would take very seriously. So why is there an exhortation against division in the body? If you go to Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. I'll give you a second to turn there if you're following along, if you're playing at home. <laughs> Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, Paul is speaking now, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So why is there an exhortation that James is giving not to have divisions within the body for really any superficial reason? Because the church reflects the spiritual truth that there is one body, one spirit, and one God. What is said throughout Israel, all through the Old Testament? Hear, O Israel, God, God is one. Shema, all the way through the New Testament to us, there is one God, right? There is one spirit and one God. So the reflection of who God is, is what James calls us to be, to reflect who God is to reflect that we are his people, uh, that we uh, want to reflect our father in heaven. Who would have shown partiality in James' time? Who would have shown this partiality in James' time? If someone would, I know this might be unusual in a sermon, but if someone would, um, in Luke 16, 14 through 15, could you read for us, 14 through 15 in Luke chapter 16. Do I have a brave volunteer? Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, 
but God knows your hearts, that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Thank you. So who would have shown this kind of partiality in James' time? Well, one good example is who? The Pharisees, right? So the culture was that they were these teachers and they even wore special robes and had special adornments on their robes. And everywhere they went, people sort of gave them uh, headway. And and you can see that if, if, um, if you've looked at the story of Nicodemus, for instance, Nicodemus was one of them, right? He was this respected man because he was a Pharisee. And this is exactly the environment that James is talking about this partiality in. You can imagine former, former Pharisees, former people that were scholars of the Old Testament scriptures. They come into the central meeting place that James has in Jerusalem. And now they're shown favoritism because that was the culture of respect. Like you've got to sit in the best place possible over here, Rabbi. And James just says, nope, that's not what we're going to do. Um, So what does the word say about riches? Specifically, James is pointing out those that are wealthy, those that are rich being shown favoritism. Just like I led with, James draws a lot from Jesus' teachings directly. In the Synoptic Gospels, Luke, Matthew, and Mark, there is an account of the rich young ruler. So we're going to look at that this morning, particularly in Luke. It's repeated, though, in Matthew and Mark. And then we're going to look at some some of Paul's instructions to Timothy to really dial in on what does the word say about riches and wealth. So. Luke 18, if you want to turn there, please do. Luke 18, 18 through 30, gives the account of this rich young ruler. It says, a ruler questioned him saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? But Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept since my youth. Now, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely wealthy. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard him said, and so who can be saved? But he said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. 
Peter said, behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. So what does Luke have in his gospel about riches and the difficulty that the wealthy have when it comes to the kingdom of God? And yet Jesus does say that what is impossible with man is possible with God. If if Jesus wants to save wealthy people, he certainly will and has. He certainly will and has because it's not impossible with God. But look at how difficult Jesus calls it out that the wealthy have a difficult time to enter into the kingdom of God. Furthermore, if we look at Paul's instructions to Timothy and 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 19, Paul says to him, but godliness actually is a means of greater gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. Saying that we have, you can't take it with you. You truly can't take it with you. If we have food and covering with these things, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things. Flee from the desire of wealth, is what Paul tells Timothy. You man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and for which you made good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I direct you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without fault or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So our riches as believers are in eternity is what both of these passages that I've read point towards. Our riches are in eternity. Our riches are spending time with the Lord, finally getting to see the one who we've spent our life adoring, the one that we've spent our life serving and getting the kids ready on Sunday morning and getting them all into the car with one or two fights and 
uh, getting here and pressing your shirt and doing whatever you need to do um, in coming into fellowship with the Lord's people. All of those things that all of those things that we put our efforts into to serve the Lord, we finally our riches are in heaven when we finally get to adore him there. Um, so the focus for both Paul and for Luke in both of those passages that we read is not for the now. It's not for the let's make sure we make the best. Uh, we, we make more money than anyone else and we don't care about the ethics of how we make it. We can cheat a little here or there or. We can possibly break uh, break contracts or not pay people. Or if I sound like I'm talking from personal experience, I, I negotiate contracts for a living. OK, um, there's a reason that people have to have contracts. Most people don't keep their word. People do not keep their word. So now we have to go through this whole process of having 10, 11 page contracts, and we've all got to do it so we can go back if something happens on a business uh, issue and we have something to go back on legally. Isn't that sad that we couldn't just trust people? The efforts that we go through because we can't trust people is, is appalling. But at any rate, not to get sidetracked. We're not to be focused on gaining wealth and just a desire for riches for riches sake. The Lord does bless believers with wealth. But it isn't it isn't our main focus. Um, and to those who have been given wealth. Those that are of means. How does God intend you to use it? I mean, the the person that makes the least money in this congregation is probably richer relatively than a lot of those in other parts of the world and the country, right? So it's all relative. It is all relative. But what does what have you done with what God has given to you? Let's continue. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So see how James harkens back to what Jesus said um, when in, in those accounts that we were just reading. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as violators. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point, has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a violator of the law. So speak and so act as those who are judged by the law of freedom. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So what is the royal law that verse 8 introduces? What is the royal law? You know, James 
James uses this phrase, and we don't typically hear the law being referred to as royal, but it makes sense, right? That it's a royal law. It's a decree from the king. And uh, verse 2-5, he calls even the poor heirs in the kingdom. Well, a kingdom has a king. And that king has decreed from creation forward his word uh, through the patriarchs, prophets, scribes, and apostles. And there is a royal law. So I also want to point out that this law refers not only to the Old Testament law, which James is deeply ingrained in, right? He, he knows that but more broadly to the complete moral and ethical law of all of scripture. So the whole collection of what God has said is the royal law, right? Jesus said things that James is repeating. The king has made a decree. The king has said, um, sell all you have, Follow me. Don't be focused on your wealth, rich man. Right. And to follow these commandments, um, particularly the love of one's neighbor. So here we have a royal law from our king. Uh, That's what James means when he says this is the royal law. Secondly, how much obedience is enough? How much obedience is enough? If I told Christiane to go clean her room and it was a a royal mess, not that that's ever happened. If Christiane goes up and she cleans her floor, but she doesn't put away her clothes, it's still kind of a wreck, but she cleaned it up a little bit. Is that obedience to what I've asked her to do? what I've told her to do. So on a much more important example, is it okay if I just maybe tell, tell a little bit of a lie? Um, You know, that's okay. right? As long as I don't kill anybody, it's okay if I lie or maybe, maybe I steal a piece of gum or something, you know, maybe I steal a little something here or there, or maybe I don't claim something on my taxes that I should have welcome to tax season, by the way. Um, you know, maybe that's just a little bit of disobedience and that's, that's okay. We can, we can shove that in the corner. No, no. Complete obedience. It's kind of like this, and forgive me for using any analogy because analogies ultimately fail on a point or two, but maybe this one will be useful to you. God's command and God's law is like a pane of glass. If you if you poke a hole in a pane of glass, it shatters. It shatters. The whole thing shatters, right? It's not kept intact. Yes, I know there's special glass and all that, but work with me, okay? It's like an old-fashioned pane of glass that 
the baseball goes through it and the whole thing shatters, right? That is what the law is like. If we break one little piece of the law, this says we've broken the entirety of it. So no, it's not okay to tell a little white lie. It's not okay uh, to have these points of disobedience because we therefore are transgressors. If you guys have ever, uh, maybe you have, a lot of you have seen uh, the Way of the Master videos. Ray Comfort did those. Uh, honestly, pretty pretty decent evangelism method because one thing that I appreciate with Ray is where he starts is the law. He starts with the commandments of God. And instead of engaging in this whole apologetic rambling of establishing that there is a God and all of that, that might have its use. But where Ray goes is right straight to the conscience. And asks people, are you a good person? And then they ultimately say, yeah, you know, I'm pretty good. Well, have you ever sinned? Have, have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever lied? Um, have you ever looked on another person with lust? And, and he goes through the whole shebang. And so where he starts is he starts at the conscience and he starts with the law. Um, I think that's the perfect place to start. The law points out what sin is and shows that you're really, you might think you're a good person, quote unquote, but in the eyes of God, if you've broken his commandment, which you have, which I have, then we are transgressors. And we've got a problem. So what is, what is the solution to our breaking of the glass? Christ's obedience is what we have to rely on. That's the only way that we fulfill the law, right? Is Christ's perfect obedience to God's law. Then James changes, and instead of calling it the royal law, he calls it the law of freedom. What in the world? The law of freedom. That sounds like two separate terms, right? When I think about law, I don't think about freedom necessarily. When I think about freedom, I don't think about being constrained by a law or a rule. But yet James puts these two together and calls it the law of freedom. Things to ponder for us, right? Think about Israel's deliverance from Egypt. What does God give to Israel after they are, are delivered out of Egypt? He gives them the law. It's a loving thing that God has done by pointing out, giving, giving them initially in Exodus, he, he gives them the, the Ten Commandments. The law is more comprehensive than that, but let's just go with that for a moment. He gives them those Ten Commandments. And that law points to what obedience to God is. That's gracious. You know, I, I, um, I manage a, a team of people at work. And when you manage a team of people at work, 
you have to set clear expectations. You have to put put together, here's, here's what's needed on this job. Here's what I need you to do. And here's when I need it completed by. Matthew's shaking his head because I know he, he knows exactly what this is and Nathaniel does too. Um, you have to lay out the project. You have to lay out the task. The Lord is a far better manager than we are. And what does he do? He lays out his rules. He lays out his expectations of how to obey him. Now, immediately, even out of the first 10, out of the gate, we see that we're going to break them, right? We can't even keep those 10. Um, So how is this the law of freedom? It's the law of freedom in that we are only free in obedience. We are only truly free in obedience. Because what are we slaves to when we're in sin? Right? We're we're in slavery to that sin. Um, you know, I was I was watching the, the testimony of, of someone who got involved in, in drugs and uh, he at first was experimenting and then it led to a lifestyle of him being addicted to these drugs and his sin had him right his he was a slave to that he couldn't do anything couldn't work couldn't couldn't have a family couldn't have a wife because he was a slave to his sin that's how we are if we're not walking with god and if we aren't in obedience to God, then we are slaves to sin. So the only way we're free, in a very concise way, obedience to God's law is freedom. We only have complete obedience through Christ. Um, but our, our obedience to the law, we are walking in freedom from sin. And I'll leave you with this last silver bullet verse. If you haven't listened to anything I said, I hope you have. But if you haven't listened to anything that I've said today, here's a good silver bullet verse for you to carry with you from here. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Thank God. Hallelujah. Thank God that his mercy triumphs over what would have been our judgment if we know him. God's grace has triumphed over sin and death and the judgment that we we deserved. And in a broader way, as James is referring to a human type of mercy as well, our mercy towards others triumphs judgment over our selfish and evil desires that he was talking about a few verses up our mercy towards others triumphs over judgment um and kind of tying it all back in the main purpose of james is leading a godly life in this particular passage He's speaking to unity 
within the church, unity within the body. There are so many things that are coming against James Church. Wow, think about the first century. What a crazy time to have been a Christian. What a crazy time to have been a Christian. And James speaks to an audience that's just rife with divisions. There's all kinds of different cultures. There's all kinds of different people of means, people that are poor, people that uh, have diseases, all of that. He's speaking to an audience rife with just division. Um, And there are people in all these different categories in his congregation and secondarily in to the audience that he's writing this epistle to. And he's also, what James has against him culturally is this this sort of Jewish culture that would favor Pharisees, that would favor, you know, scribes, that would, would give them a special sort of place in the Jewish community. So all of this, so in our time, bringing that forward to us, what are those divisions that we make in the body? S- seldom we do make distinctions because of doctrine. I think that that's a good thing to do. To separate ourselves with doctrine that rhymes with scripture, not doctrine that we're just making up, right? If we need to separate to, to be able to maintain peace, okay, But when we separate over foolish things like having a beard, right, Um, whatever, whatever we would use to draw attention to ourselves, Richard's covering his beard, Um, you know, all of these silly divisions that we tend to make among ourselves, we we make litmus tests. Does someone watch Disney? Well, no, can't be saved, you know. To someone, <laughs> all these discretional things, okay? That's those are divisions that we are just sowing um, that don't need to be there. We need to be centered in on the word and what it says. Um, so there is one God, one spirit, one body, and one law, and James is speaking towards that end. Um we are to have unity in the body because of its reflection uh, of who God is. Um, to show partiality or to create those divisions, blasphemes, who is God and breaks his holy law. So our application is this. We don't separate ourselves out into divisions that should not be there. We are one in the law of love. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would challenge our our beliefs, challenge what we think, and, and find any way that's in us that's not turned towards your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us to Father, take this and to meditate on it, Lord, and thank you, Father, for triumphing over judgment with your mercy. Father, I pray that you would be with us as we go into our time uh, observing the Lord's Supper. 
pray that you would be with us as we um, as we continue in your service. In Jesus' name, amen.